Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, more wheels fall off at the SPLC, we tell the story of the money behind the effort to ditch the Electoral College, and the ramifications of the Janus decision, securing government workers' rights not to support unions they oppose, continue to be determined. If you thought firing its founder Morris Dees was a bad sign for the Southern Poverty Law Center, the subsequent weeks have shown that the far left's supposed watchdog of hate groups is going through a full-blown omnishambles. Since Dees' ouster, which we covered last week, SPLC President Richard Cohen and SPLC Legal Director Rhonda Brownstein have both resigned. For whatever it's worth, Cohen was paid $350,000 and Brownstein was paid $213,000 in 2017. Cohen stepped down, citing his responsibility for overseeing what SPLC employees called a, quote, toxic workplace environment. The SPLC's left-wing workforce also complained about the prominence of white senior leadership. Dees, Cohen, and Brownstein are all white. The SPLC had faced additional criticism from both left-wing and right-of-center sources for its substantive claims about hate groups. Conservatives have hit the SPLC for attacking mainstream conservative organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom, which we called by its former name, Alliance Defense Fund, last week. We regret the error. And equating these mainstream conservative groups to violent extremist groups. Meanwhile, left-wingers, and I commend an article on the radical left magazine Current Affairs on this subject, are also questioning the utility of SPLC's ever-growing list of hate groups, finding that upon further examination, it includes a number of groups that are either apparently defunct or not actually organized fonts of radical extremism. SPLC is in many ways a fundraising factory, taking money that could go to potentially worthwhile efforts. The Southern Poverty Law Center's annual budget is larger than that of the South Carolina State-Level Indigent Defense Commission. SPLC's home state of Alabama doesn't even have a state-level indigent defense body, and using it to fan fears which SPLC exploits to harvest more money. In response to the shambles in its top-level leadership, SPLC has hired Tina Chen, a lawyer focusing on diversity issues and an Obama White House veteran who served as then-First Lady Michelle Obama's chief of staff. Chen was in the news more recently for reaching out to Cook County State's attorney Kim Fox on behalf of Jesse Smollett, the actor who apparently falsely claimed to have been attacked by Trump-supporting thugs on the coldest night in Chicago in decades. For those hoping that mass turnover in SPLC's leadership would refocus the organization on something other than slandering mainstream conservatives and non-progressives, the appointment of a political operative like Chen is inauspicious. In another follow-up from last week, Fred Lucas of the Heritage Foundation's Daily Signal, with assistance from Capital Research Center, has published a piece laying out the funders behind National Popular Vote, a group pushing to replace the Electoral College with a provision to grant the presidency to whomever wins the most votes, regardless of whether the candidate secures a majority. In the jargon, plurality first past the post voting. The group is National Popular Vote Incorporated, and it is a lobbying group pushing the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, a legally questionable end run to do away with the state-by-state elections to determine the electors of the Electoral College and replace them with the plurality first past the post voting without a constitutional amendment. In short, if states with a majority of electoral votes ever agreed, those states would award their electors to the the first-past-the-post winner, regardless of the state-level votes. The legal questionability comes from two conflicting tensions. States have some leeway to assign their electors. Currently, Maine and Nebraska assign theirs by congressional district, so they may have the power to grant them to a national plurality first-past-the-post winner. But the Constitution requires certain interstate compacts to be ratified by Congress. The major backers of the project are John Coza, a Democratic political donor who made his money inventing the scratch-off lottery ticket, and Tom Galassano, a former third-party candidate for governor of New York who supposedly backed off from the project after spending $10 million on it. 
Other financial supporters of National Popular Vote and its sister educational arm, the somewhat misleadingly named Institute for Research on Presidential Elections, include Stephen M. Silverstein, the a liberal library card catalog billionaire, the Jennifer and Jonathan Allen Soros Foundation, the philanthropy of one of George Soros's children, and the left-leaning Sandler Foundation. All of this left-of-center funding makes the claim by former Republican Party official and NPV spokesman Solonuzis that, quote, the national popular vote movement has never been a partisan movement, questionable. For his part, Anuzis was paid $120,000 in 2017 by Institute on Research for Presidential Elections, National Popular Vote's sister organization, according to tax records. Gets even more questionable when one considers that the organization's secretary, Chris Pearson, is a sitting member of the Vermont legislature for a left-wing minor party, and is a former aide to socialist U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders. As we noted last week, using the so-called national popular vote would actually be uncommon among large and rich democracies. Only the Philippines, Mexico, and South Korea use it. Other democratic countries, whether they use a consensual system, a proportional system, or a constituency-based system, the Electoral College is a constituency-based system, all seek to balance the need to form an effective government with the need to represent diverse factional and geographical interests. And in our final item, the government worker union AFSME prematurely declared victory over the Janus Employee Rights Supreme Court decision, announcing that, quote, In overwhelming numbers, AFSME members have blunted the attacks of the wealthy special interests and chose to stick with their union. In fact, total workers paying into AFSME coffers fell by 82,000, with a bump of 18,000 retiree members only partially offsetting the loss of 110,000 forced union fee payers liberated by Janus. Before we go further, it's important to identify what Janus actually did and put it into perspective. 27 states already had right-to-work laws, allowing employees not to fund the union. Janus had no effect there. Only about half the country even saw an effect from the decision. Janus had no effect on collective bargaining or union organization, like Wisconsin's 2011 Act 10 reforms, passed under then-Governor Scott Walker. This reduced the Janus decision's ability to lower union membership simply by existing. State and local employment increased over the 2017-2018 period, Since large numbers of state and local employees are unionized by default, this would be expected to increase union membership. Despite that, AFSCME lost paying employees anyway. It's important to note that the unions have been fighting to reduce even these modest effects. In states controlled by union-backed Democrats, government worker unions are pushing bills designed to keep money equivalent to forced dues flowing and ensnare unwilling employees into continued dues payments. Washington State considered a bill that proposed, quote, allowing unions and government employers to force public employees to pay union dues, threaten to terminate public employees for failing to pay dues or lie to employees to get them to agree to pay dues without facing any legal liability under state law, according to the Freedom Foundation, an employee rights advocacy group. The Oregon House passed a bill allowing unions to obtain dues authorizations over the phone, while requiring whatever opt-out conditions they chose to set through a collective bargaining agreement. And in government the union is often negotiating with public officials it paid to elect. And California's largest teachers' union faces a lawsuit from the Freedom Foundation challenging a union rule requiring employees wishing to revoke dues deduction authorization to do so in a narrow annual window, contradicting the clear language of Justice Alito's Janus ruling, which states, quote, neither an agency fee nor any other payment to the union may be deducted from a non-member's wages, nor may any other attempt be made to collect such a payment unless the employee affirmatively consents to pay. Throughout the history of right-to-work provisions, they have not ended unions, and union supporters who claimed that Janus would decimate unions were being misleadingly literal. AFSCME lost slightly less than one-tenth of its paid representation. Where government worker unions have seen steeper declines, Oregon and Washington being two states where this has happened, 
It has been with the support from aggressive pro-employee rights campaigns, like those conducted by Freedom Foundation, which has canvassed the states informing government workers of their Janus rights. Other efforts, such as a Florida proposal to end the controversial practice of providing government-paid special leave for union officials to conduct union business, known as release time or official time depending on the jurisdiction, also offer taxpayers the opportunity to strike back against union privileges. Justice Alito has made his ruling. It is now time to enforce it. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.